Welcome back, listeners. This week, we're happy to bring you an interview with Harlan Joy, one of the founders of WRFG 89.3 FM in Atlanta. This community radio station began in the early 1970s, and Harlan talks to us about the history of the station and progressive media and politics in the city, the region, and the nation. I'm Gina Kaysen, and this is about South. So today we are recording, it's new for About South, we're recording at the studios of WRFG 89.3 FM in Atlanta, Georgia, and we are excited to be here with Harlan Joy, who is the founder of The Station, and The Station has quite a historic presence in the city of Atlanta, and I think a lot of our listeners may be familiar with it. But those of you who are either not from Atlanta or just not hip to WRFG, you are going to learn a lot today with Mr. Joy. So, Harlan, Mr. Joy, thank you for being with us. You're welcome. Uh, Let me just say one thing. I'm a founder. I'm not the founder. I just want to make that clear. Okay. I like that. Yes. That's that's how most things should be. A founder of WRFG. So to begin, can you tell us a little bit about the founding of the radio station? What inspired you to start an independent radio station when you did? And how did this come about? Okay. I mean, this could go on for a long time. I'll try to keep it short. That's okay. For this. I'm from the South originally, but I came here after nine years in New York. And in New York, I'd gotten to know W. Um, BAI, which is the Pacifica. Pacifica Foundation has five stations across the country, and they're lefty, independent network. Uh, WBAI was their New York uh, station, and I listened to a lot of material there. I was on the air there a number of times, everything from doing programs on the uh, radical right and debates with young adult, uh, young Americans for freedom and stuff of that sort, stuff on Cuba. So uh, I had that, and and the music there was great. I learned a lot about music from listening to WBAI. Coming down here in 66, 67, it was, uh, as far as radio was concerned, it was a desert. And I mean a desert. uh, National Public Radio, WABE, at the time broadcast during the day to the schools because it's owned by the Board of Education, and broadcast at night, classical. Not necessarily good classical. I mean, standard standard classical. And that was all. Right after we started the station in 72, I started putting it together. Somebody tried to get a jazz program on WABE, and they required them to get several thousand signatures from people that wanted to listen to jazz. They said, nobody wants to hear jazz. (laughs) <laughs> so it was that attitude. <laughs> and uh, uh, REC was you know, an automated uh, station, which it's always been more interested in its engineering than its, its broadcasting programming. Uh, G- uh, uh, WGSU, Georgia State, 
at the time played mediocre stuff, not very much interesting. Clark wasn't on the air, and there was a blank space. We didn't know it was a blank space stop. But we were interested in starting some particularly something. BAI, if doing the anti-war demonstrations in the early 60s, if you wanted to know what was happening, you went to BAI. That was the place. That was the people who knew where the, where the demonstrations were, who knew what was, you know, generally what was happening. Uh, I said, we need something like that here. Well, there was nothing at the time. And I can't say it was a, uh, a desert here. I'd said it, but I shouldn't because there was the black, in the black community, there was SNCC, there was SCLC. There were things happening. In the white community, it was practically nothing. We started working on some... Uh, organizing, but this is 67. We didn't know anything about putting together a radio station. But in 71, somebody came down here. There was a group. There were a few independent stations across the country, and people putting those together decided they needed to pioneer in areas where there weren't any because universities, churches, etc., were eating up all of the, the uh, nonprofit section of the dial which is 88 to 92, that's all nonprofits. So they sent somebody here with a permit to start the process of building a station. The person that came here had no interest in politics, no interest in cultural affairs. He had an interest in starting a free-form music station. We spent a year taking it, that license away from him, changing the board and making sure we took the ownership over from him and running him out of town, basically. I wouldn't say that, but it's true. Uh, so at the end of that, we had the permit, but we had no place for a station. Anyhow, so that's why we started the station. I had the conception, several things. I had the conception of doing a lot of broadcasting from communities, doing music that came out of the communities. Uh, over a period of a year while we were trying to take that away, we built up a ca uh, a group of folks that met every week and talked about what the station would be and where we were in trying to start one. And when we came out of that, we had about four or five points. One, that we would be for social justice. Uh, two, <clears throat> we would be for alternative rate musics of all types. And three, and this one we had to be careful of, for those of us who wanted a political station, this is 19, this now was 1972, 73. Nixon was in. COINTEL was happening, Pro. Uh The Red Scare was still on. And so we brought, we phrased that carefully to say we were a station that would give voice to certain particular groups that were excluded from the airwaves for you know, reasons of class, reasons of sex reasons of the ones that are in our mission statement now. Uh, we've added several since then, but the basic ones were there. So that's where we uh, were in terms of what we were going to do. We had this permit. The permit was to broadcast at 10 watts uh, from the transmitter. That would be the amount we'd be putting out, 10 watts. We knew nothing about what that meant, really, most of us. We had a few people who had some radio experience, but very few. We had to find an engineer. We found one. Um, and we had to find a place for studio. We found that. And we had to find an antenna, a tower to put our antenna on, which we found at the time. 
And finally, we went on the air. We we made a big fanfare of what we were going to be. I have a list of advisory board list here that shows all the all the organizations that we had reached and talked about what we were going to be. People still didn't believe us. They said, you can't do this. Um, we would go to, to schools and talk about what we're trying to do, and people say, you can't do that. You All sorts of different music and politics? Uh-uh. No, no way. So, uh, but we still... There was now a newspaper here, an underground newspaper, which was very good. The Great Speckled Bird was one of the best in the country. And uh, a lot of the people from the bird were working for us. In fact, my former wife, who was also a founder of the station, uh, was on the bird staff several times and wrote for the bird pretty often. I wrote for the bird occasionally. So uh, there was a connection there. And the bird played up, I'll go in on the air, had a big four-page section in the center center page that we were going on the air showing the type of programming we were going to do and, and statements from several of us. And so we went on the air, and nobody could hear us, practically. We were 700 feet on the tower, but we were broadcasting 10 watts. 10 watts. Uh, so suddenly, we were the station that nobody could hear. And believe me, it's always been, we've had problems before, but that was a major one. Because, I mean, you could hear, if you're in a little circle, a tiny circle, I lived across the street from the place we had the studio at the time, so I could hear us. But uh, most people couldn't. If you lived right under the tower, you could hear us. To make things worse, the Red Squad took an interest in us. The Red Squad was part of the police station that handled anti-terrorist, uh, wasn't terrorists at the time, but anti basically anti-communist things. And uh, they went, we were, we were on Quixie's Tower, WQXI, and 700 feet up. They went to Quixie and said they needed to throw us off. That we were a mixture of Trotskyist, communist, weathermen, <laughs> which was uh, part of the, the SDS part that was known for doing some bombings, homos, Black Panthers, and dope smokers. Uh, we know exactly what they said because they called their lawyers in Washington, the FCC lawyers, to decide what to do about us. And their FCC law firm, we had a lawyer there that was handling our case, so he called our, he, they called his, our lawyer over, and he heard it and taped it. So we had a tape of what the, the Red Squad had said. We uh, had to go broadcast off the roof of our one-story uh, building at the time, and you couldn't be heard anywhere. Uh, that was why we tried to keep our mission statement benign, fairly open as to what it said, a lot more open than we wanted to be. And uh, for a long time, we had to be careful with that as a result. The Red Squad had... had um, tagged 10 places they called the most dangerous places in Atlanta, and they were all political uh, places. But um, Did that feel like a badge of honor a little bit, though, that if the Red Squad's on to you, you might be doing something right? <laughs> yeah, it, it, it had some of that. And that list of, I mean, I know that they certainly meant all of those things pejorative, but you might kind of feel like, yeah, that's it. Come one, come well, all. Well, like that's who we yeah, are. Well, no, somebody said, that, well, they got about fifty percent right. <laughs> <laughs>
if you weren't doing something that the establishment was afraid of, mm-hmm. um, they wouldn't have been concerned if everybody could hear you or not. Oh, no. So you were hitting something yeah. that was yeah. needed. Yeah, and some, a few of us, actually at one point, one of our, uh, one of our board members and one of our founders uh, was at, he was a lawyer, and he was at, a, and he's also in a church group, and he was at a gathering for the church, and they had a, you know, a, a policeman stand, is a, uh, they had money, so the policeman on guard. And he talked to the policeman who'd been in the Red Squad, and his bit is, if you get rid of Hall and Joy, you won't have any problems. But I had a background, political background, when I came down here already, so. Uh, it, Were you scared? Hmm? I mean, when they're were they saying, like, what yeah, do you mean yeah. get rid of you? I well, mean, that seems well, kind of Well, no, ominous. they just meant push me out. Yeah. But um, the former guy we pushed out had gone, been picked up by the police for something, and he told them that I sold dope and carried a pistol on the strip, the hippie strip. So I got really worried, and I got broken into in a way that wasn't a normal break-in during that time. White guy in dungarees, somebody saw him. Uh, the only thing he picked up on was paperwork and my pistol, uh, which I did have, of course. I, I carried a pistol in the car when I was doing uh, organizing work. And we went more and more political as the years. At one point, we were about to get just knocked off. I'm not, not, that's not the word I want. Taken over. Uh, because what everybody said is, you always got money problems. You could you could get rid of your money problems if you went to doing one type of programming, and if you toned down your radicalness. And our bit was always, why? I mean, what, we might as well close shop. I mean, we don't want to be a radio station. We want to be a left radio station. There's a difference. There are lots of radio stations. You went into it knowing that you had a political purpose, yeah. and there probably were, it seems like, a lot of opportunities to compromise that. Oh, yeah. To, you know, to solve these other problems. But where did you find the strength and inspiration to say, no, we're not solving this problem by changing our mission? Mm-hmm. How, how did the board deal with that? How did y'all talk about that? How did you continue over the last... 40, 50 years to hold tight to that principle. Let me put a couple things in there for this, because one I should have mentioned before is that early we made a point of diversity for the station. We wanted sexual diversity and racial diversity. And we brought in people that really had those same thoughts as part of politics, too. So we had a good core of political people Maybe some weren't as left as others, but uh, generally political people. And even though we kept our heads down, sort of, we didn't even use the word radical very often. We certainly didn't use progressive at the time, and we didn't use socialist or anything like that. And some of our people wouldn't use that now. Uh, But the board, we tried to select people on the board that held to that. Did people not understand that there was a political left, oh. a radical left in Atlanta, that that's a target yeah. market. Yeah, I don't, I don't think people do. And the, the, the breakdown here was harder. You know, there, there are a few interesting books on the subject of 
of the left politics here in the 20s and 30s, dealing with the South, really, but a lot of it's about uh, Atlanta, because Atlanta was a big place. The committees to um, support the Scottsboro Boys were important here, for example, and a number of other. The CP had pretty good presence here at one point. Going a little bit further back, the railroad in, uh, unions, they ran, uh, he nearly won somebody for mayor one year, about 1898, right around that time. Labor Day used to be big parades here. It, it, it's, well, it, we don't have labor history anywhere, really. And the other part of what you're talking about is that when, when people have this fear of sounding, you know, the two left, et cetera, that's been going on. <clears throat> I used to argue with people, you don't want to say you're socialist. The communists were left, and now the communists cut off. The socialists are left. If you shut, shut up and they don't use that and don't deal with that, they get dumped off. Then you get the liberals, and you can move on over where the left is just barely outside the center, old center. And that's what's been happening. And it, it increases, it, in, it continues to happen. We pushed back a little bit in the last few years. But with Bernie running for, for uh, president and socialism coming, that surprised me. That wasn't anything with radio, but that surprised me that socialism suddenly come, becomes a word that we can use again. Uh, how long that will last before the counterattacks get so great that people just shut up about that and go back to finding another more more prosaic word. And like I say, we were cut off. We, we, we didn't start that way, even in the 70s, because it was just too, too dangerous. What have been, over the years, your biggest surprises? And I think we've talked a little bit about the challenges, but what are the things that just, even though you started this almost quixotic, we're starting a radio station, we're doing this, and people yeah. thought it was quixotic, but then over the years, just the challenges that you never could have anticipated, that, wow, <laughs> like now we're worried about this. Something we always talk about is the incident with the uh, federal prison, the federal pen. Uh, Cuban prisoners went the federal pen. There was a, the government was talking with Cuba about sending, these were refugees that fled Cuba, and uh, the government was talking about sending them back to Cuba in an agreement with Cuba. What year was this? 87, 1987. 1987. We had broadcast in, the, in our effort to reach such things as prisoners, jail conditions, et cetera. We'd, we'd worked on several things. Uh, Ebon, at one point, had had an agreement with people in, in halfway houses, women, black women, to come in and do a program, learn how to do programs and do a program of their own, which they did for probably close to a year. So that was one sort of example. But in the meantime, we had two programs, both jazz, that aimed at prisoners, information for prisoners, and particularly the federal prisoners. 
because <clears throat> the federal pen had people could listen to the radio. And so we'd had this set up, and um, sometimes they'd call in, and we'd take their calls on the air if they called in doing the programs. Uh, that was Faye Bellamy and, and Ernesto Perez had those programs. When the riot started, the only people, the only way that the prisoners knew they had contact with any of their family was through our programs. And they didn't trust the mainstream media at all. So they would, their, their families would come in like these folks sitting out there. They'd be Cuban families. And getting on the phone and uh, uh, on the radio and talking to their their uh, loved ones and it was a big it was a big riot they I forget how many prisoners they'd taken um, but a large number throughout all this the media started the mainstream media started coming in to hear to talk to us about what was happening at the pen because they did from the prisoners the and uh, we actually helped persuade the prisoners to release a couple of the hostages uh, as a sign of goodwill. So we played a major role in that. And who would have expected it? And I mean, we were, we were on the front page of national newspapers because we were the only people doing this that they could reach. So that was an interesting surprise type thing I hadn't expected. And I think in terms of achievements in some way, when I think it's non non uh, disappointment surprise. Mm -hmm. The other was doing the Living Atlanta programs, which again was a grant that I managed to get through the National Endowment for Humanity, Humanities uh, to produce 50 programs on the history of, of uh, Atlanta from World War I through World War II, life in a segregated city. And we interviewed about 150 people uh, and I, I had, I was the director of that. I ran that program, that, that and was major producer. Um, I tried as much as I could to let the people tell the story, but not like I'm sitting here talking to you, but pulling it in and making it work into a, a program, a documentary program. And we covered a little bit of everything in, about life in Atlanta, from black baseball to police to hospitals, music, you name it. Uh, the textile work in the textile mills here. <clears throat> uh, railroads. Originally, we were given a grant to do two programs, and we did five. Three on the railroads, because railroads are really important in Atlanta during this period of time. It's one of our major industries. And two on Atlanta University. Then we got Grant for we got grants all together for close to a hundred thousand dollars, and uh, <clears throat> then we were doing these. This is nineteen eighty uh, seven, seventy eight, seventy eight to eighty. We were cutting tape, you splice tape. You add it by splicing tape, and uh, that that's a that's a chore in itself. We had a lot of, lot of pulled a lot of uh, volunteers into the station, who hadn't been around before, some of whom went on to do other things. And some of whom stayed with the station, doing other things in the station. But every now and then, I talk to somebody. Says, "Oh, I, w I was involved in, in doing the editing for the, because uh, they'd come in, they'd make copies of the tapes. And the other thing I did, I went through, I went through the tapes, listening, made my log, 
And once I got the log together and picked out what I wanted, I never wrote anything down. If you know, I, I, I didn't want any, I didn't want us read what these folks said. I wanted to hear what these folks said because that's what that's what the program is going to be. Right. That makes I. I work very similarly, actually. It's kind of mm -hmm. nice for me to hear that that's how you did it. <laughs> how do you think that... How have you seen with the radio station, how have you seen Atlanta grow and change in terms of progressive politics, and how do you see the radio station's relationship to that growth and change in Atlanta? Yeah, that's really a hard one in many ways. It's hard to to judge it. We played, you know, if you talk about the whole, whole community, the whole uh, city, we, we, we aren't doing as much non-political stuff as we used to even. At one point, we broadcast all the, um, at the Piedmont Park Arts Festival, all the music program, all the music um, presentations were broadcast on WRG. And uh, a number of things like that. We had contacts in the station. And I look back and I said something to, our, to Cheryl, our president, I chatted with about this a little bit yesterday. I said, uh, I was looking back at this period. We had on our board Michael Lomax, who went on to be Fulton County Commission Chairman, uh, Bill Campbell, who went on to be Mayor of Atlanta. I don't want to talk about him too much. Gene Young, uh, a whole batch of people who were well-known in the city and had clout. We don't have that anymore. That's good and that's bad. It's politicians aren't necessarily good. These were before these folks were really that well-known politicians. Um, but anyway, I just mean that we had that sort of connection with what quote the mainstream uh, city. They we've moved away from that, and uh, a lot of folks never heard of us, even folks on the left never heard of us. We haven't been able, we haven't had the, it's partly money, I think, to uh, to really reach out as we should. We haven't had that touch. We've been, now, parts of the left, uh, like the labor movement, we've always been pretty well involved with. We had that connection. We've had connections with the a whole number of, of small left organizations, and they use us. Uh, I don't think we've made that connection as well as we'd like to. At one point, when when Trump got in, I pushed for us to become like WBAI uh, <coughs> had been in Atlanta. The the. Uh, the go-to place for what's going on in, in left politics. Now, some people have done that before on social media, but we never picked up on that and really did it. 
and I, I didn't do it, I have to admit, but no one else picked up and said, okay, let's get this done. That leads uh, into something I'd be curious to hear you talk about is where do you think the media landscape is right now politically and what do you see, why is independent media an important part of that that maybe is either not picking up the charge or um, even WRFG becoming this voice in this place where people can be the radical left and have an open discussion about that. How do you see all this tying together? Let me start this way. If I look at what we might be doing, you know, that's one of your questions in here. What do I see for the future of WRG? This sort of tying into what we're talking about right this minute, I think. Okay, so one place we've got to move is in the internet and electronic side of the situation, okay? That means we've got to, not only, we're doing some uh, Facebook and some Instagram and some Twitter stuff now. We need to do an immense amount more of that. We're going to get a second stream. We need that. Like GSU has one with album 88s on that now, I gather. And I know NPR has some. We definitely need that. We probably need more than we need. I think we have to think through that. That's the mechanics as far as I'm concerned. How do we think through these? How do we use these? How do we make the most of those? Can we go to some place on its web page or someplace else and put out an entry, put out something like our program guide was years ago with other information about the station? How much, when are we going to start broadcasting? After the fact, <clears throat> at least part of our uh, Labor Day bar blues barbecue and things like that, uh, so that pe to bring people into the conception of the station, I think always we're going to need the station that that core. I think the core is what's important here. You don't have that core, and if you get out into electronics more, you don't have that political core, that conception uh, at the center to hold the other parts together. And in addition, that's that's one side. The other side is the programming. And I think we've lost a lot there. And as we open these other alternatives to put programming into, I'm hoping we can develop back. I'm hoping we go back to and do, do some more broadcasting out of communities, closer to what those communities are like, and not just Atlanta. We reach outside of Atlanta. We don't do anything when you reach outside of Atlanta, as far as I know. Hardly, hardly anything in DeKalb. In DeKalb, it's right here. But certainly not out a little further. And the towns around doing a lot of things, particularly in music, but other things and other things that are of interest and should be of interest to us. And, uh, and doing more. We don't do forums and, and talks that are going on, some of which are very... You know, we could we could be the person to broadcast that out, and particularly where they come out in left positions, we'll we'll announce them, but we don't do them. <laughs> and it, originally, we were doing some of that, even with real to real tapes going to things and taping them and bringing them back and broadcasting them. Now, partly it's been it's just it, that the spectrum. But one station is just too tight. But now we can expand out, and we haven't done that very much. It's only been recently that with people like Chris coming in and some others, 
that we have thought more about that than we have. As a broadcast entity, we are we are constrained by the FCC. So we have to keep that in mind. With this, as we move out into the Internet, we are constrained by that. We're still constrained by being a 501c3, which means we still can't do active political run, uh, supporting people running for office or supporting legislation, specific legislation. But uh, we can move further out, which is, is good, too. It gives us a little more uh, leeway as we reach outside. I think sometimes I wonder if there's still, and how you've seen this over your career in radio, there's such an apology for leftist politics. Mm -hmm. And that maybe people say, well, you know, you don't want to get targeted by the authorities or, oh, we're not going to get the fundraising if we really say the progressive things that we mean. Well, see, that's why people say, well, there's NPR and it's liberal. I said it's only as liberal as the government will let it to degree. And it's moved more in reliance to business, and it's only as that again, it's the same thing. Their money comes from things that, that are concerned about their politics and what they say on the air. And uh, they can easily be cut off. Uh, I guess if we went right wing, we could be cut off too, but <laughs> from the little little donations we get. But yeah, you get cut <laughs> off from those donations, although I look at the state of the proliferation of right-wing media, and I'm oh, like, yeah. I don't know when anyone cuts the mic on yeah. these guys. I, mean, uh, I know. <laughs> it is there. It is there. <laughs> and and we, we need much more countering, countering that, too. Is, that's, what I'm, I, there's so many places we can move. Now I'm getting too old to do this, but somebody needs to be doing it. Thank you for listening this week. We want to send our gratitude to Harlan Joy, Christopher Hollis, and the entire WRFG community for making this episode possible. We encourage you to check out the station and the independent media in your own community. You can learn more about WRFG, the 1987 prison uprising at the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary, the Living Atlanta program, and the Great Speckled Bird at our website, aboutsouthpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and you can support us on our Patreon account. We'd also like to ask you to subscribe and rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. About South is brought to you from the historic West End of Atlanta, Georgia. Kelly Vines and Ajwa Danso are my co-producers, and Jessica Parker joins us this season as an assistant producer. Brian Horton generously supplies our music, and you can find more about his music at brianhorton.com. Next week, we're coming to you from Copenhagen, Denmark, talking to Southern Studies scholar Martin Bone about the U.S. South's long role in history in globalism. Until then, take care. <laughs>